0: Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. In medicine, we have been focusing a lot on the coronavirus pandemic, naturally. But today we're going to take a break from that to discuss another public health effort in the United States. Namely, the White House Stop the Bleed campaign and its advocacy for tourniquet use by the lay public. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Roberto Portela about his team's recent article in AEM entitled Application of Different Commercial Tourniquets by Laypersons. Would public access tourniquets work without training? The objective of this study was to determine which type of tourniquet could be applied most effectively by the lay public, using only manufacturer instructions included with each tourniquet. Dr. Portela currently serves as the Program Director of the EMS Fellowship at East Carolina University's Biden Medical Center, and as the Medical Director of Pitt County EMS. He's board certified in both emergency medicine and emergency medical services. He's a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians and the Association of EMS Physicians. Dr. Portela joined the Army Reserves in 1994 as a 91B combat medic. He deployed in support of Iraqi freedom twice in 2006 and in 2010. After 21 years, Dr. Portela retired from the Army Reserve with the rank of lieutenant colonel in 2014, and we are so happy to have him with us today to discuss this paper. Dr. Portela, it's so nice to have you on the podcast with us today. Thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure, ma'am.
0: So let's just talk about some background. What research had been done prior to your study about the application of tourniquets by untrained laypeople?
1: So the most of the, the studies really were military first, right? They were looking at if tourniquets were a viable option in the military. And of course, you know, after years of the Iraqi and Afghanistan war, they proved that uh, tourniquets reduced morbidity and mortality, you know, and there was no loss of limbs because of application of tourniquets, you know, not really because of the tourniquet. But then there was a few studies. There was a study out uh, that looked at comparing the SWAT-T versus the CAT versus the RMT tourniquets on lay people, uh, just to see which one was better. Uh, they, they saw that there was a lot of failure rates. They saw that most commonly the failure rates were inadequate tightness. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the RMT, the ratcheting medical tourniquet was the best one in that study. There was another study that actually looked only at the CAT tourniquet and see if just-in-time instructions, a little card with instructions before application versus just giving the tourniquet did better. And they did find that that little card made a huge difference and twice better. So it went from a 20-something percent success rate to a 44 success rate just by little that card. That being said, that still showed less than 50% successful application of a tourniquet, even with the instructions.
0: Wow. So let's talk about your study now. So your objective was to establish if laypersons persons without prior training could correctly apply tourniquets in a timely manner using only the instructions included by the manufacturer in the tourniquet package. And so you compared four commercially available tourniquet packages. Most physicians who don't do EMS or who haven't done any kind of field medicine don't use these. So can, can you describe these packages for us and are they different from one another in significant ways?
1: so there's uh out of the four that we used, there were two that they were significantly different uh, from the other ones but the there was the ratcheting medical tourniquet or the rmt and this one it's a self-locking buckle tourniquet basically looks like the strap on a ski boot Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. so you have an addable click every time you kind of tighten the strap then there was the SWAT-T, which is a stretch, wrap, and tuck tourniquet. And now this one's really just an elastic bandage. It can be used as a pressure bandage, but if you uh, stretch it enough and, and wrap it around tight enough, it becomes a tourniquet. Mm-hmm. Those two are completely different to the other two more common ones, which are the combat application tourniquet, the CAT, which has a windlass. Uh, a rod that you have to tighten the tourniquet with and a strap, and the special operations tactical tourniquet wide, which is a soft tee, which is so similar to the CAT. It's an open loop tourniquet with a metal windlass that you have to tighten and then kind of secure in place. So the CAT and the soft tee are similar, but the RMT and SWAT T are in their own little uh, place.
0: So I can imagine just by your describing these that the instructions that came with the package would be very important for a layperson trying to set this up. So uh, so tell us about your study. How, can you describe how you set it up?
1: We recruited people from a local university and a local tourniquet. It was a Taekwondo tourniquet, right? And what we were looking for is people that didn't have any medical background or experience putting tourniquets. So... What we did is we assigned them to one, uh, we randomly assigned to one of these, each tourniquet. Mm-hmm. And we just gave them the tourniquet and the instructions. They were already laminated, but we gave them the instructions that comes with a tourniquet and the tourniquet. And we presented them with an, uh mannequin arm mm-hmm. that had a simulated wound with blood, well, simulated blood dripping from it. It was water colored di- red dye. <laughs> So they had a visual cue of the bleeding of the patient, mm-hmm. and we timed how long it took them from the when they said start to actually when they said I'm finished, I place the tourniquet, I'm done. Okay. And we also we we made sure to blind everybody from other participants from looking what other people were doing. We we had some privacy screens so that way. Only one person was inside the privacy screen with the mannequin arm. So there was no bias of people looking at how other participants were doing it.
0: And how did you measure whether the tourniquet was applied correctly?
1: So that's where it might be a limitation, but it was uh, kind of subjective. We had one of our investigators that obviously we, we trained each other looked at how much the dripping simulated blood stops. So it was either effective and all the dripping blood stopped completely. Mm-hmm. It was partially effective when we saw a decrease on the dripping blood, simulated blood, or it was completely ineffective when we saw any no change whatsoever on, on the rate of drip of that simulated blood.
0: Okay. So you were looking at these four different types of tourniquets as well. And um, comparing both the efficacy and the time it took them to accomplish that, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And so, how many people did you enroll? Were they all from this taekwondo tournament?
1: They were a mix between the taekwondo tour- tournament and the local university. Okay. Kind of uh, randomly in the hallway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, how many people did you wind up enrolling, and what were
1: your exclusions? So. We were able to enroll 176 participants, mm-hmm. which was good because we were powered for 152. So we went over what we needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, our exclusion criteria, though, included that they couldn't be less than 18 years old. They couldn't report any prior experience with a tourniquet. We were trying to get any anyone that had used a tourniquet before out of that study. Uh, any employment history with law enforcement, EMS, a physician, physician assistant, or nursing, or any military involvement in the previous 10 years. And the reason we use 10 years at that particular moment in time is because the CAT tourniquet had appeared in the military more or less in that time period. Before that, it, we had hasty tourniquets in the, in the military. And out of the 176, we actually only had to exclude 10. Five, it was because of missing data points. And the other five is because they actually meet exclusion criteria. Mm -hmm. So at the end, we ended up with 166 participants.
0: And what other information about them did you keep track of?
1: So we got their age, gender, and we got their highest education achieved, uh, education level. Mm -hmm. Uh, We wanted to see if there was some kind of correlation with that, with how well they put the tourniquet on.
0: Okay, so let's talk about your results. Are laypeople effective tourniquet appliers? And was there a clear winner among the four tourniquet types?
1: So we saw that they can place a tourniquet in a timely manner, but overall tourniquets were not placed effectively almost half of the time. So similar to prior studies, time to tourniquet application averaged around 120 seconds, so two minutes for all applications but like I said about 50 percent effective regardless of the tourniquet use so not a lot uh, one-third of all tourniquet applications were ineffective so one-third of them didn't do anything but when we looked at all the tourniquets the ratcheting medical tourniquet the RNT, was definitely the winner compared to the other ones uh, this one pla- was placed uh, effectively more, more often.
0: I see. You mentioned one limitation before. Are there any other limitations of the study that you'd like to comment on?
1: Yes, there were, you know, there was a couple. So the first and the most common one, the most glaring one is this was a simulated event without any stressors, without any real patients involved. Uh, So we are not sure how well these patients, these subjects will actually do with real patients in a real situation or if they even be willing to actually apply a tourniquet on somebody or themselves. So that's the biggest limitation. The other ones, uh, there might be selection bias. We actually use only two recruiting sites. So we might have just looked at, you know, a couple of people that can do it. Uh, Even even though we excluded people with prior training, we did not exactly ask about, have you seen it on TV? Have you seen it in social media? Have you seen the Stop the Bleed campaign? So it's a little hard to say that there was some influence there. And the other thing is the instructions. The instructions were different for each tourniquet. So it's a little hard to compare them uh, side by side specifically. Some of them, one of them were in color, Some of them have better graphics than the others, so a little hard to compare there.
0: You mentioned the Stop the Bleed campaign. What are your thoughts about what should come next if we want to enable the public to be lifesavers in this way? And can you just mention what the Stop the Bleed campaign is?
1: Yes, so the Stop Bleed campaign came about in October of 2015 by the White House, and it was a call to action to create national awareness of how bystanders can become trained, equipped, and empowered to help in a bleeding emergency before professional help arrives. You know, as the Hartford consensus says, it's immediate responders, these bystanders, can become uh, lifesavers mm-hmm. by controlling bleeding. And obviously, unfortunately, this all came about due to the uptick in active shooter events in the United States between 2000 and 2013. And and the Hartford consensus from the American College of Surgeons came a few months behind uh, the active shooter event in the Sandy Hook Elementary School, where we had, you know, the loss of life of numerous Mm. children there. Uh, What I see, you know, what we hope and what we think that we need is we need more training, just putting these bleeding kids out there without any prior uh, training, doesn't seem like it's going to cut it. You know, I, you know, less than 50% uh, effect, effective. We need training. And this training apparently has to be combined with other stuff. The same way that we do CPR and AD training, the same way we require CPR training for some jobs, I think uh, hemorrhage control tourniquet training should be included with these kind of trainings or these kind of jobs. Uh, to kind of foment that uh, that national awareness of we we need to stop the bleed. Fantastic.
0: Are you conducting more research yourself in this arena?
1: We are. Uh, out of the stuff, that, uh, out of the things that we thought about is we thought about maybe what is the retention rate of people that get trained to apply a tourniquet. So that's one of the things that we're looking at is if we train you now. And we recheck you in a couple of months, how do you do? Have you retained that scale? The other thing that we were looking at is, do audio prompts make you apply a tourniquet better than a visual instructions? Sort of like an AED, for, for example. So those two studies, actually, we have conducted. We are in the, We are in the process of doing a manuscript and submitting it right now.
0: Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for your work in this area. It's very important. And I look forward to seeing what
1: comes next. Thank you, man. And I'll be remiss if I don't mention that this study really was possible because of my prior residents, Dr. Cameron Cheryl, Dr. Whitman Dow, uh, Mr. Steve Taylor, my chief paramedic, Corey Brewer, our Ph.D., and my colleagues, Dr. Juan March and Dr. Brian Kitch. So without them, this wouldn't have been done. Well,
0: thank you to all of you. I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you, ma'am.
0: Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.